welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Connor Chato. And I'm your co-host, Yusuf. And I'm here with an old friend, Tyler Juno. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Awesome. So tell us um, about your background, your academic background, how you came to be interested in, say, theology and philosophy. Yeah, so there's a, that's obviously a very long story, so I'll do the best to give a kind of Cliff Notes version of that. Um, I guess I've always, as far back as I can remember, I've always been interested both in theology and in philosophy. Um, I find the questions of both of those disciplines really fascinating. I didn't pursue it um, anything in anything like an academic capacity until uh, later in life when I hit college, so after high school, and I started doing more serious <laughs> studies. Um, and the motivations for doing that were all over the place. I, I guess part of it was because I was raised uh, evangelical, so I started off life believing all of these things as a sort of, I don't want to say a fundamentalist, but I was in that wheelhouse, you might think, of, of religion. Um, and it took me by surprise when in high school, uh, I seriously converted, or I seriously considered conversion to Islam, for example, uh, and that made me think very long and hard about the differences between religions, um, the difference in credibility of claims between religions. Eventually, when I hit college, uh, I had assured myself that um, Christianity seemed like it was more reasonable than Islam after I had I had compared both of them, at least in my high schoolish estimation, you, had, you might say. Um, but then I started to have deep epistemological doubts about whether I could have any justified beliefs um, that were, roughly speaking, religious in nature. Uh, I presumably was no smarter or more sincere or anything like that than anyone else who had similar beliefs, um, but who subscribed to different religions or no religion at all. So that became a really serious problem for me. And I started thinking more seriously about whether I should become something like a naturalist, right? Somebody who has a, a roughly speaking, a secular view. It's not particularly religious. Right. Um, and then, yeah, so it was very much to my surprise that in studying philosophy, I was actually turned away from that and then back towards theism. Uh, so I looked at the arguments for and against God's existence, and I found myself strongly impressed or persuaded by some of the arguments offered, for example, by St. Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Theologica, this massive work uh, in the medieval period of just philosophical theology, um, which took very seriously at the very beginning uh, a case for atheism and then dismantling the case and then presenting five arguments for theism. I was exposed to a transcendental argument from logic for the existence of God that I thought was decent at the time. And then I was exposed to a kind of Leibnizian argument from contingency. And that argument was probably the one that uh, impressed me most and persuaded me. It still persuades me. So I've changed my mind uh, in the years, over the years, about which arguments for or against God uh, are really good or bad arguments either way. That argument, though, continues to, I think, persuade me, impress me, nearly compel me. I do think that's a very good argument. Um, but I mean, that's a, that's a very short way of capturing what was essentially a very, very long journey into an academic study of both theology and philosophy. That's quite fascinating. Connor, you had a question. <laughs> yeah, I was just gonna, I was just impressed by the kind of breadth of um, opinions and thoughts you had on the topic, you know, switching 
from devoutly from one religion to another one and then stepping back in terms of how devoutly you were focused on any particular religion at all and then questioning that idea but then then moving on once again pivoting i think for like a second or third time um back towards uh, a, a really intense belief just to break down some of the ideas and arguments you you went through and kind of touched on. Um, I think the first one being St. Thomas Aquinas is kind of your introduction to maybe what got you back into your faith. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was definitely a first step um, in that direction. And ironically enough, of the five ways that are attributed to, well, that Aquinas outlines in the Summa Theologica, the one that impressed me most was actually the third way, um, and that's the one that I think actually doesn't work now that I've gone back and looked at it more carefully. But I do think that with a small amendment, it can be made to work. But that amendment makes it look more like the kind of argument that was offered later on by uh, Gottfried Leibniz, who I think is one of the greatest philosophers of all time, is one of my favorite philosophers. Um, and so in particular, I would say if I had to... Um, give just one argument for belief in theism. I, of course, I would probably cheat and try to give a cumulative argument. And so just put all the arguments I know together and say, on balance of reasons, this looks like a decent argument. But if I had to select just one, it would probably be this kind of argument from contingency, which I think has a lot of intuitive appeal. I, the argument basically goes something like this for, for listeners who've never heard it before. It starts off with a very simple premise about um, there being certain facts about the world which are contingent, right? By contingent, we just mean that there's no, nece there's no necessity in its being that way, right? There's no necessity in the world that explains why that's the case. So I may have had uh, cereal for breakfast yesterday, for example, but I could just as easily have had a bagel instead. Right. So which one I, as a matter of fact, had seems to be a contingent fact about the world. It could easily have been otherwise. Um, had my parents never met, I might not exist. So I qualify as a kind of contingent being in that sense. And so there are all of these propositions that we know about the world that are, it seems, contingent. And generally speaking, we look for explanations of facts that we don't have explanations for. We operate on the presumption that for any contingent fact you could pick out about the world, for any fact that's not necessary in the way that something like 2 plus 2 equals 4 is necessary, um, or seems to be necessary at least, you could dispute that, but most people don't. For any fact about the world which is contingent or appears to be contingent, there should be some reason why it is the case, right? Okay, well, if you if you feel that that intuition has some pull, right, if you feel compelled by that intuition, then the argument is, in a sense, intended for you, right? So the contingency argument runs roughly as, for any contingent fact, it is the case that there will be some sufficient explanation of its being true. Whether or not you could know what that explanation is is a different question. Maybe the explanation of it is so difficult for you to conceive of that given human cognitive faculties, you'd never be able to understand it or know it. But that's not really the point. The point is that there is some fact of the matter, right? There is some explanation of why it is true rather than not. And then the second step is to say, look, speaking formally and logically, when you put two propositions together, you get a new proposition. If I put propositions P and Q together, I get a new proposition, call it P1. So 
if I put together all of these contingent facts about the world, I can actually end up with what some philosophers call a big conjunctive contingent fact, right? Think about this as the the biggest contingent fact in the world that just includes all other contingent facts. Well, if the principle that we started with is true, that for any contingent fact, there should be some explanation of its being true, then there should be some explanation of this fact, right? This big conjunctive contingent fact. But then you'd have to think very carefully about what kind of explanation there could be for that kind of fact, right? It couldn't be a contingent fact that explained the big conjunctive contingent fact, because then it would belong to the set, and that's just straightforwardly circular, right? So you need something that explains the set of contingent facts, and which itself is not contingent. And that starts to look like you're appealing to a kind of metaphysically necessary being. If you think, for example, that the only kinds of necessary facts that could do the kind of explanatory work we need them to do, so maybe not mathematical propositions, but something that is necessary nevertheless, if you think that that needs to be an appeal to some necessary real thing, not just a number if you think it's an abstract object, but something that can actually do the work of explaining contingent facts, then it looks like you're appealing to a necessary being, right? Now, of course, the first thing people point out with this argument is that gets you in the door, um, but it doesn't get you anywhere near religious theism. You can't use this argument to decide between um, Islam, Christianity, monotheistic versions of Hinduism, deism, and so on. This argument is neutral with respect to those finer grain details. But you can get further than I think a lot of people Uh, think that you can. So you can not only get to a necessary being, but you can get to a necessary being that is powerful, right? Powerful enough that it can serve as the causal explanation of the existence of all contingent things, um, the explanation of all contingent facts. In fact, you can even argue your way to its being all powerful. If you think that it's metaphysically necessary, then it's the kind of thing that should exist across all logically possible worlds, If the principle we started with is true, not just in our world, but across all possible worlds, you're going to have to appeal to this as the explanation for any big conjunctive contingent fact that happened to be true. And so it just looks like any scenario that you could conceptualize, that you could come up with as a coherent picture of the way the world could be, if it involves contingency, it's going to have to, at the end of the day, come back to this explanatory starting point in terms of some necessary being. Um, that's that's a very, very roughshod way of going through the argument. If I were giving a, a proper lecture on it, I'd be a lot more careful about each of those steps. But hopefully that right. gives listeners at least a basic idea how it goes. I mean, as we, we seem to be more familiar with contingent things to begin with, and we have little to perhaps even no idea what on earth does a necessary being even mean or necessary thing being. We might understand necessary statements like two plus two plus two four, but a being. Um, so I was just wondering, as people who have maybe a bit of a bias or maybe uh, towards our experiences, all, we, all what we experience are these contingent things and not so much a totality or, as you said, a conjunction of all of these things supposedly requiring an explanation altogether. It seems to me that people who rely on our, on, on our experiences, on 
scientific theories telling us about observable, unobservables and observables as well, that they would be reluctant to think about these strange uh, sort of necessary beings. So wouldn't it be better to withhold judgment than to posit this being that might be somewhat mysterious? Yeah, so there are a lot of really good philosophers who think that. In fact, when I first encountered this argument, it was in the context of this famous debate hosted by BBC Radio between uh, Father Frederick Copleston and uh, Bertrand Russell, both of them fantastic philosophers. And the first time I heard the argument, I needed to stop and just <laughs> think about each point uh, for longer than it took them to make the point and go back and forth on it. One of the ways that Russell responded to this argument, for example, was to say something like, look, the concept of necessity is the kind of concept that can only be coherently applied to a proposition. We can say of a proposition, um, you know, bachelors are unmarried men, two plus two equals four, something like that. We can say That's of those right. kinds of propositions that those are necessary, but we shouldn't say of a being that it is necessary. In fact, that seems to be an almost grammatical or conceptual mistake, right? Um, I remember thinking carefully about that point when he made it, and Copleston's response was something along the lines of, this is, this is just a sort of overly restrictive view, and it won't allow for the kind of explanatory work that the argument motivates, right? Again, if you accept that first principle in the argument, a kind of principle of sufficient reason, as it's called, then it seems like you should be committed to saying, look, in principle, at least there could be an explanation, right? If, if there even could be an explanation, if it's even possible to have an explanation, it seems like it has to come in the form of positing necessity, not merely de dicto, as philosophers say, with respect to propositions, but also with respect to necessity de re, right? With respect to beings themselves being necessary. Um, and in the end, I just thought that the case for, the case against saying that necessity can apply to beings coherently just seems confused to me. It seems overly restrictive. And when I sit back and think to myself, do I really have a coherent concept of what it would mean for being to be necessary in this Leibnizian sense? It seems to me that I do, right? And in fact, most people who are atheists or agnostics at least acknowledge the possibility of there being such a thing as God. Right. So, and involved in that, I think wrapped up in that claim for those who are more philosophically literate is the idea that you're positing a being that's supposed to be necessary in a really strong sense. Right. So it couldn't fail to exist the way that I could fail to exist. Right. If only my parents didn't come together or something like that, it's supposed to exist in a stronger, more fundamental sense, which when it gets cashed out philosophically, turns out to be something like is metaphysically necessary, right? Exists across possible worlds and so on. Mm -hmm. So this is this, this kind of thought and argument that um, really convinced you, I guess, on a personal level, is that also something that ties into your thesis work and research as an academic? Is that, it's, are, are you, are you lucky enough to have kind of this really personal want and interest in exactly this question and it also happens to be this thing you're studying because that's always really good. 
Funny enough, no, actually. Um, okay. So philosophy of religion, for me, acted as a kind of gateway drug, you might say, or a gateway philosophy into every other area of philosophy. So oh. once I started with philosophy of religion, um, in which I was deeply interested once I actually encountered these kinds of arguments back and forth. So um, arguments, evidential arguments from evil against the existence of God, I think are actually very powerful arguments. Um, yeah. Arguments from the hiddenness of God against God's existence are pretty powerful. Fine-tuning arguments are relatively good for God's existence, moral arguments, and so on and so forth. But as I started thinking more seriously about all of these arguments that are offered in philosophy of religion, it just naturally led to me being interested in a number of related questions about um, philosophy of mathematics, philosophy of science, epistemology, metaphysics, and in particular, the one that actually drove me to pursue research was on the question of the philosophy of time. And initially, for me, that was actually a question in the philosophy of religion. I had to think about what it would mean for a being like God to exist if time were objectively flowing, rather than um, this model of time that we're familiar with in physics, where or at least most people seem to know it from physics, where you have a kind of block view of the universe, right? So all times might bear these relations to each other of being earlier than or later than or simultaneous with others, um, at least relative to certain frames of reference. But you can think of it as a kind of big block universe. Whereas this other notion of time, a more fundamental and intuitive one, says, look, I know that it's right now the present. And I know that that's different from the past, right? There's something mm -hmm. really sharply different about that. And it's There's different at least something even... sequential about time. Right, yeah. right. And so this leads actually to philosophers of time basically dividing into two camps, right? Usually we unhelpfully call them A theorists and B theorists. It's, it's unfortunate because that's really not descriptive at all. Um, but A theorists basically are those who say, look, there really is some ineliminable fact about what time it really is now and what time it was previously and what times are yet to come. And there are different versions of how to work that out. Some people call themselves presentists. So they say the only things that actually exist are those things which presently exist, right? Those are just coextensive. Others are growing block theorists. Uh, so they say the past is real, right? And the present is sort of at the cutting edge of reality, bringing new things into being. Mm. But the future is in no sense real, right? So when we yeah. say, for example, um, the sun will rise tomorrow, we're either saying something that's literally not true yet, right? Or we're just speaking in a very casual way, given a kind of inductive inference. But is there actually a matter of fact on that view? No, not really, mm -hmm. right? And there are other views as well. There's a moving spotlight view where all times are real in some sense, but the highlighted ones are like super real. I'm not sure it makes much sense to be a moving spotlight theorist, but there are some people out there who think that the theory can be motivated philosophically. And that then alternatively, like yeah, yeah, I think so too. And then alternatively, there are B theorists who just regard all times as on a kind of um, metaphysical par you might say. So mm -hmm. when we say that something is present or past and so on, we're referring to ourselves, right? We're saying something like, from the perspective that I have right now, that was the past. But it's not as though from, you know, from a God's eye view, quote unquote, you don't have to believe there's such a thing. But in, in order just to cash out the statement, from some objective view from nowhere, 
Um, there is a matter of fact about which things are present and which past and so on. The B theorist just rejects that view outright and says, no, actually there's not. And the relevance for, I mean, it sounds pretty abstract, but it does lead to, uh, let's say, religiously uncomfortable conclusions, depending on which way you lean religiously. Um, for example, most religious people who believe in God want to say something like, God is omniscient, right? God knows all and only true things. Actually, technically, that definition is wrong because it's set theoretically problematic. But you mean something like, um, for any proposition that's true, God knows it to be true. And for any proposition that's false, God doesn't believe it to be the case, something like that, right? Um, okay, well then, what do you do with facts that are actually tensed, right? If there's a real fact about what time it is, then an omniscient being who's supposed to, the classical view of God is just that he knows the end from the beginning, right? He can see all of time as though he's standing outside of it. Uh, the way that you can know the beginning and the end of a novel when, when you're standing outside its timeline, you can know the whole story, whatever part of the book you happen to be reading again, right? Yeah. Um, but here, if there's a real hard fact of the matter, like table-pounding hard fact of the matter about what time it is, and God is omniscient, then God has to be literally changing his mind at every moment of every day as he keeps track of the propositions that go from being future tense true to present tense true and then to past tense true, right? And he's got to be doing that for every single moment for infinitely many propositions. <laughs> and right. it just seems like that's asking a whole lot. Um, not to mention that it makes God um, subject to his own loss of his history, right? So maybe he can remember his past, but he certainly can't remember his past as though it were present to him, because if he could do that, then he wouldn't know what time it was. Right? He'd have no way of telling the past from the present or anything like that. Um, but then to say of him that he doesn't perfectly recall his past seems wrong. In fact, even to say that he has a past, right, that he's subject to change over time, seems wrong, because he's supposed to be this necessary being. Right? That was the whole idea we started out with. So getting here is, in a sense, uncomfortable. And this motivated, in me at least, a desire to look seriously at the arguments pro and con, not just theological, although I think the theological arguments are really interesting as well, but in particular right. the ones from the philosophy of language, uh, from set theoretic and, and concerns in the philosophy of math, and then also from concerns in philosophy of science, in particular dealing with interpretations of the theory of relativity. Because some so, people have suggested mm -hmm. that if you take science seriously, you really ought to adopt that B-theoretic view, right? So, um, um, uh, so Tyler, that's really amazing how your quest for truth or your quest to know whether or not God exists or has brought you to, uh, well, to your research in philosophy of time, philosophy of science, and philosophy of mathematics from this perspective. I think that's super cool. I guess I'm, I bet that you probably had many sleepless nights <laughs> once you got to know about the problem of evil. Um, I mean, it's, perhaps easier to explain why there is moral evil, evil as a result of us having free will. You know, we might do all kinds of bad things. And that maybe a, sufficient, uh, a maximally great being has uh, morally sufficient reasons to allow for that kind of moral evil to exist. Maybe that world is a better world than where 
where we know to have free will, for example. But what about natural evil, evil in this broad sense, evil that seems grotesque, uh, oh, sorry, gratuitous, <laughs> whatever, the, whatever, the, whatever it is, um, sort of stupendous evil as a result of, say, having coronavirus or, or mm. tsunami or unnecessary evil. Is that like really evil brought required? about by these unconscious things? Yeah. Right. How do you explain this good God who, can, who has all the power to stop, stop something evil as well and uh, permitting this? Yeah, so this is a good question. Um, and the joke about me having sleepless nights is almost not funny because, yeah, I do have sleepless <laughs> oh, nights um, about almost everything in philosophy, actually. But yeah, I mean, this was a question that uh, I, I seriously struggled with. And I actually more recently changed my mind on it in an interesting way. So at a first pass, I would say that we have to differentiate a logical version of this argument from an evidential version of the argument. A logical version of the argument is going to try to say that there is some logical incompatibility between there being evil and there being an all-good, all-knowing, all-powerful being, right? If a being were all-good, it would want to stop evil. Uh, if a being were all-knowing, it would know how to. If a being were all-powerful, of course, it could do it. There's nothing impeding it. So whence evil, right? How could you explain that? Now, most philosophers have, especially since uh, the 1970s, I would say, with the work of philosophers like Alvin Plantinga, most philosophers now accept that there's really nowhere for the logical uh, argument from evil to go. It looks like it's a kind of effectively dead argument. At least it's, it's an argument that's sleeping, you might say. Maybe in a century or so, it'll be resurrected by some very clever philosopher, but it looks like uh, that argument is just not going to work. And the reason for that is there can always in principle be a logically possible world where you have some being like God that's all powerful, all loving, and so on, and the existence of evil, so long as it's even conceptually possible that God has some morally sufficient reason for allowing whatever evil there is, right? And again, you may not even need to know what that reason is or have a good hypothesis as to what the reason is, so long as it's conceptually, or put it more strictly, so long as it's logically possible that there be such a reason, it seems like there could be a reason, and therefore the logical version of the argument won't actually hold water. So I don't think that the logical version of the argument is very good. I do think that the evidential version of the argument is very good. And this has been developed by philosophers, especially Paul Draper, for example, who are really, really careful about the way that they construct it and who try to motivate this idea that, look, I mean, some of the evil we see in the world really does appear to be gratuitous, right? And by gratuitous, philosophers mean it looks like it's the kind of thing for which there isn't a morally sufficient reason that God has. It's not that it's a conceptual point. God could have some reasons for Auschwitz or for the coronavirus or even for things like stubbing your toe. That doesn't seem like a grave evil, but it does seem like the kind of evil for which there's no morally sufficient reason. Why should that be part of the way the world works or the way the story of your life plays out? Um, it doesn't make you morally better. It doesn't seem to make anyone else morally better, right? So uh, there are all of these gratuitous evils that if you if you are pulled by the intuition that they really are gratuitous, then I think you can 
see how the argument is supposed to go. Maybe it's the case that God conceptually could have had such reasons, but just on the basis of the evidence being such as it is, it looks as though these are the kinds of evils you would think to expect if atheism were true, right? On the condition that theism is true, these evils are extremely unlikely. These evils do obtain. So we have a good sort of uh, probabilistic argument against the existence of God from these evils. Now, the response to this argument that I used to prefer, which I only recently uh, rethought, was a kind of what's called the skeptical theistic response. And skeptical theism says something like this. Look, we do have sort of um, pre-critical intuitions about there being gratuitous evils in the world. But as a matter of fact, we don't have any strong intuition that God does not have or likely does not have some good reason, some morally sufficient reason for permitting this or that evil. How could we ever have that kind of intuition? It doesn't look like it's an empirical intuition. It doesn't look like we come preloaded with it in any Kantian sense, anything like that. It's not a strictly rational intuition as we've already established with the other arguments. So where did this intuition really come from? And why are we making it do all of this work, right? We're making it do this work in philosophy of religion that might be poorly motivated. And so you see similar objections here to the kinds of arguments you have against the principle of sufficient reason in the contingency argument. I think, though, at the end of the day, um, we really do have strong intuitions that pull us in these different directions. I think that to some extent, we should take those intuitions seriously. And yeah. the approach that I'd prefer is to say something like this. Look, um, maybe it's the case that we're not in a good epistemic, we're not at a good epistemic vantage point to say how likely it is that something like God could have reasons for this. But even so, we should say that it seems like they're gratuitous, and so that should qualify as some good probabilistic argument against theism. Right. And the attitude that I take is actually that if you survey these arguments in philosophy of religion, I think that the argument from uh, the evidential argument from evil, although it's it's a terrific argument, I think it's actually a very good argument that needs to be taken seriously. I think that sometimes people think that it should just carry the day, right? That independently yeah. of any other argument, it should just win. And I think that's actually a probabilistic mistake. In fact, uh, this is going to be a little cheeky, but I actually think that there are other arguments in philosophy of religion for God's existence, which are roughly as strong as this evidential argument, so that the probabilistic um, turning of the tables, let's say, actually cancels itself out between the evidential argument from evil and an argument from fine-tuning, for example, which is uh, something that a lot of physicists take very seriously. Um, I don't like the argument from fine-tuning. Well, that's not fair. Mm. I like it as much as I like the problem of evil, right? So I think they're both good arguments, and they just cancel each other out. So in the end, yeah. we're left with, okay, so what are the other arguments we have? And then we keep going through, and obviously, you guys know what conclusion I've come to, but um, at the end of the day, I really do think there are just stronger arguments on balance for theism than there are against it. So Right. Okay, yeah. I, that, I imagine there's you know, a million <laughs> arguments to go through on, on this topic. It is, in fact, a very, very big one. <laughs> so, um, yeah, astounding to tackle it and kind of nice to end on this, this idea of, you know, comfort and whether or not these, uh, 
these gratuitous evils are are a uh, <clears throat> a real thing or kind of a, a caused thing. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show, Tyler. That's that's all the time we have. Thanks, a um, lot, Tyler. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much for having me. I feel like we only just got started, but that was. I great. thought you might <laughs> yeah. become uh, an atheist by the end of this conversation. Uh, survived, uh, yeah. uh, as always, too short for that, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you so much. This has been Gradcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I've been your host, Connor Chato, and my co-host was Yusuf Hassan. We've been speaking with Tyler Journeau. And this episode was produced by Ariel Frame. If you'd like to get involved with the show or get in contact with us, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we're on the radio at chrw 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a great night.